Listening to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Regulators with the State Health Department and the EPA are on scene at this hour observing an exercise simulating a spill at the Navy's Red Hill Field Storage Facility. We're told that Rear Admiral Wade, charged with the mothballing of the underground storage tanks, is also observing the drill. While that is going on, the Centers for Disease Control and the State Health Department are urging anyone who may have had any effects of the contaminated water to take part in a health survey. It's a follow-up to earlier efforts that were launched at the height of the contamination. The Red Hill crisis has stretched out for close to a year now. Federal and state health officials are renewing efforts to survey families affected by that fuel contamination. We talked to Diana Felton, state toxicologist with the health department, about their outreach efforts. We know people are continuing to have issues with symptoms and feeling unwell, and we want to find out more about how they're feeling, what they're feeling, how they're approaching their water use. The more information we can get on a situation like this that is so unprecedented, the more we can do to inform our public health response and help people. Is there anything you can share about the responses that we got at the beginning of the year? The results have actually been published, and there's information on the DOH website as well about the results. Some of the sort of key results were that 87% of respondents reported at least one or new worsening health symptom that they related to the contaminated water, and most of those switched to an alternative water source. And about 80% of people who switched to a different water source found that their symptoms got better. But people had a really wide variety of symptoms, primarily things like headache, fatigue, diarrhea, skin problems. We also saw a fair number of mental health symptoms like anxiety and depression, and those were frequently experienced by people as well as a result of this incident. Are you also including any issues with pets? Pets were asked about in the the first survey, and there were quite a number of people that reported problems with their pets and illnesses in their pets. And then there's a couple questions on the follow-up survey as well about how pets are doing at this point in time. Yeah, because the military did designate a particular clinic, a veterinary clinic, so that families could go to because it was, you know, close proximity to their homes and they could get, get their pets looked at, you know, right away. Certainly pets were affected in this contamination incident, as you know, in addition to so many people. Are the questions very much, you know, different from uh, what we saw earlier? Some of them are very similar, and then some of them are different, branching out, trying to understand what is occurring for people at this moment, as opposed to how they were before. And, you know, I have seen some things posted on the uh, uh, Facebook pages, water that didn't look so hot. You know, when I checked with the military, I know they were saying that, oh, some were isolated incidences, you know, relating to, let's say, uh, you know, bad uh, water heaters, not directly linked to the Red Hill fuel situation, but just other issues with their water. Certainly, some of the infrastructure is is old in those areas. So, you know, I I don't know details of of what kind of water other water problems people are having. You know, Department of Health continues to oversee the long-term monitoring plan from the Red Hill incident, continues to evaluate the, the sampling result from the long-term monitoring that's going on at the Joint Base Pearl Harbor Hickam water system. Early on when we were seeing the contamination, you know, last year, just driving around those neighborhoods, I did see some signs about Uh, congressionally mandated water surveys. Do you know much about that review of the water system? I am not familiar with that, but I can certainly get back to you on that. What's the response been like, you know, with these surveys? For this follow-up survey, we've had a fairly good response. You know, the survey is closing on September 23rd, so we really urge people to please participate if, if they can. We have been pleased so far with the response we've had, over 700 respondents so far, but of course we want as many people as were affected 
you know, to participate because the more more information, the more experiences of people that are included in the survey, the more, you know, useful the information will be and the more the more valid the data will be with more participation. Were you tracking any families that included expectant mothers, you know, that kind of thing, or, or breastfeeding moms? Yeah, one of the focuses of the follow-ups was really to try to identify pregnancy, birth, and breastfeeding outcomes. That's an area, you know, there's not a lot of good experimental or modeling data from this kind of exposure in, there, in the area of the pregnancy, birth, and breastfeeding and maternal child health. There's really no, you know, past historical examples or experimental models that really match this type of exposure. So that has been a focus of this follow-up survey. So we've done particular outreach to the OBGYN clinics and really trying to reach the women and families that have had pregnancy and births that have been breastfeeding during this time period. Yes. I mean, I, I recall that the Navy secretary, you know, uh, said that they were going to, um, you know, look at those concerns of, uh, of families at the time. And I don't know if this survey is being done you know, in concert with anything else that the military is doing? So the Department of Defense has described some possible initiatives, but we're, you know, we're really hoping that the Navy and DOD will use the tremendous health resources at their disposal to really further delve into these ongoing health experiences of people. That's really, you know, a push from our end is we, we really want them to take advantage of their large health resources and really apply it to this problem and and to understand why people are having continued health problems and what potential outcomes might occur. I don't know. Do you have ways to get a hold of some of the original respondents? We've been reaching out to them directly by email to try to encourage them to submit an additional survey as well. And, you know, email has worked so well in that because many of the families have moved to other locations as part of their military transfers. So the emails that we collected the first round have been really helpful in reaching out to people to encourage participation. Okay. And then once the survey closes, do you expect that you will do a additional follow-up? At this point, I'm, I'm not sure. We certainly will be doing a lot of work, for, which will take quite a bit of time and effort to analyze the data and understand the themes. There are a number of questions in the survey that are open-ended, what we call qualitative questions. So we want to make sure and sift through all that information to really understand what people are experiencing and start looking for themes among people and how that can direct our public health response and any further efforts to help the families. Okay. And you're just trying to reach everybody, not just military families, but anybody that might have been uh, living in those housing projects that could have had their um, water contaminated. Yep. And not just living, but working, going to school, you know, going to businesses, anyone really who you know, was in the area of the Joint Base Pearl Harbor Hickam water system and consuming the water. When this event first happened and we recognized the sort of extreme nature of the catastrophe, we immediately reached out to the experts at CDC and the Agency for Toxic Substance and Disease Registry and their National Center for Environmental Health, and we asked for technical assistance because of the massive unprecedented nature of this exposure. And they provided a lot of technical assistance in different ways, but part of that technical assistance was bringing in their EPA team and this assessment of chemical exposure survey team and program. I hope as many people as possible will participate. Okay. You know, the survey takes about 20 to 30 minutes to complete. We really urge participation and you know, we understand that people are still experiencing, you know, continued health problems that so far we've been unable to explain. And we really hope that this information will, will help us have a better understanding of what people are going through and better understand these illnesses and how to help. That was Dr. Diana Felton, state toxicologist, who's working on the health survey of those affected by the fuel contamination from Red Hill. That survey actually closes tomorrow. We will have links to the DOH website for uh, the survey as well as the results of the previous surveys from the Fuel Leak on our conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org.
you check today looks at the sudden about face over the stadium entertainment development project at Halava. Honolulu Civil Beat Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair joins us. Good morning, Chad. Good morning to you, Catherine. So we're talking about a story that Blaze Level reported on. This is about the Aloha Stadium. It's an interesting story. Yeah, and it's it's taken some new twists. As we know, the stadium is falling apart. It is outdated. Um, remember what some of us call it the rust bucket? Yes. <laughs> There's other words for it. But for many people, still, Aloha Stadium is something that's very important, and especially with the love of sports, particularly football, uh, here in the islands. So what what Blaze did is he happened to tune in, and I'm filling in for him today because he's off covering another story, but um, he did tune into the Star Advertiser's Spotlight Hawaii program uh, with Ryan um, Kalei Suji and, and Yenji Denise, and we got to give credit to the Star Advertiser because the day before, uh, they broke the story that the state was halting the solicitations of bids for development um, of Aloha Stadium caught a lot of people by surprise. The governor was asked about that directly during Spotlight yesterday. And what he's saying, the governor now, is that he wants to speed up construction of a new uh, Aloha Stadium. And how is he going to do that? Well, he's going to get rid of that public-private partnership plan that uh, was going to you know, add retail and housing and a few other things to that area out in Halava. Uh, and in fact, he wants a more streamlined process to get the stadium up first. Yeah. And, you know, that uh, entertainment uh, district uh, right. uh, development, uh, you know, it, it's gone back and forth. Uh, and I think the uh, Department of Accounting General Services was about to go out for bids at the end of this month. They were just waiting for the green light. And then, from what I understand, got an email uh, from the chief of staff saying, uh, <laughs> yeah. hold on, <laughs> we might go right. in another direction. And, and that's true. And of course, what has changed is that DAGS is no longer in charge of the stadium authority and running uh, the stadium. It is now DBED, the Department of Business, Economic Development, and Tourism. That's Mike McCartney, who, by the way, is a former uh, chief of staff for Governor Ige, still part of the administration. And and McCartney broke that news on Tuesday. It sounds like there was a leak somewhere <laughs> from someone, but essentially saying, yeah, we're, not much details have been provided, really, in terms of what's going to happen. And uh, supposedly in the next few weeks, according to McCartney, we are going to hear more about what's going on. Um, I, one thing that Blaze did that I uh, think was terrific is he actually reached out to Josh Green and Duke Iona, the candidates for governor, a Democrat and Republican, respectively. And, and, and both of them said if they're elected, they're likely to stick with whatever it is if the governor, the current governor, can, can work out in Aloha Stadium while he's still in office. Remember, his term's up in early December. Uh, Green actually wants to expedite. Uh, the whole thing, getting Aloha Stadium back up and running. We should say, however, Iona, while acknowledging that he would go along with something that was done, he actually prefers, why don't you just keep it at UH Manoa, the campus there, right? Ching Field has been expanded, converted to handle the Warriors football games. And uh, But, you know, if this thing is done, he said he would stick with it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's interesting. I mean, um, you know, we've been hearing that somehow UH is involved and, and mm. may get roped back into building this. But, you know, um, lots of head scratching over that one, too. I mean, you know. Right. And remember, uh, the, the the entertainment district was going to include affordable housing, hotels, retail. Some have questioned whether that's needed. Others have said, oh, no, it's, it's, it's a great opportunity. You're going to have the rail stop there. Uh, but let's let's just put it uh, frankly. There's a lot of politics involved here. There's a lot of people, I'm sure, behind the scenes. But in terms of actually getting that entertainment district up and running, the governor says that's still something that the state is interested in. But really, you're going to have to deal with water and sewer lines. There's other connections that will be involved. Let's focusing let's focus on the stadium first before we try and develop the the broader, greater stadium area. Right. And, and I know some folks who are uh, hoping that we would get affordable housing sooner rather than mm-hmm. later are now wondering if that's going to happen and what's you know, what will happen at Halava. But, yeah. yeah, this much we do know there is three hundred and fifty million dedicated for bonds uh, to start construction there. That came out of the session from the legislature uh, just uh, just earlier this year. So there is money. We'll see whether it works. Right. OK, well, thanks so much, Chad. Sure.
That was Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. To read Blaze Level's story, visit civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the BIA Big Home Building and Remodeling Show, offering seminars on energy efficiency, aging in place design, and more September 23rd to the 25th at the Neil S. Blaisdell Center, biahawaii.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Will Jawanda, author of My Seven Black Fathers. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how mentorship can provide a pivotal change in the life of a young person. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaii Island Community Health Center, providing medical, dental, and behavioral health care services island-wide. Learn more at hicommunityhealthcenter.org. Before tourism, sugar and pineapple dominated Hawaii's economy, employing more than 19,000 workers. As part of a project with the University of Hawaii at Manoa's Ethnic Studies Center for History, HPR is bringing you voices of Hawaii's past, sharing life stories of resilience. Ethnic Studies professor Tai Kavikatengan introduces three leaders of the ILWU Local 142, the International Longshore and Warehouse Union. They talk about how plantation workers made the difficult transition from being agricultural laborers to providing services for tourists when sugar and pineapple production phased out. Our first narrator, Fred Galdones, was the ILWU Local 142 Division Director for Hawaii Island when Hamakua Sugar phased out and the union helped workers adjust and find new jobs. What we were able to do at Hamakua Sugar was what we call the last harvest. So there was a gradual shutdown of the uh, the operation. I was uh, involved in the Hilo Hamakua Coordinating Committee. It was an economic development task force. What do we do to help the uh, the workers out? So we had to reach out to the um, to the religious group too to help us uh, to deal with the uh, domestic things were happening at home, the emotions that were happening. At home. We reached out to the uh, Department of Labor to have them transition from uh, sugar jobs into the other jobs. What kind of uh, training can be afforded? We also had looked at extending their unemployment benefits beyond the normal uh, six month period. We just um, didn't leave them out in uh, out in the by themselves. We tried to provide as much of an umbrella to help them um, transition from sugar job into other jobs that they were interested or capable of uh, handling. The emotions was the hardest. That was the hardest to deal with. Our next narrator is Joanne Kealoha, retired social services coordinator for ILWU Local 142. She talks about how pineapple workers on Lanai adjusted when Castle and Cook owner David Murdoch closed the plantation in 1992. So he decided to, to close down the, the plantation, thinking that he could get the workers from that the plantation to work in the hotels. But he needed to have them be more confident about being able to do hotel work and be more um, and be more amenable to working in a hotel. So they put them on furlough for a month, and then we work with the state and the uh, county to develop a training program. It wasn't really training, but it was more like getting familiarizing them with uh, with hotel work getting to feel like they could do that kind of work, make the transition. We um, met before the classes started. People all came in with their pineapple clothes. They were wearing um, jeans and uh, long sleeve shirts. And, um, you know, the shirts were all, that were, were kind of um, a little dirty. They were dirty, but they were, they had a lot of dirt on it because they couldn't get rid of the dirt, uh, even no matter how many times they washed the clothes. They were in the, in the, the meetings. They didn't say anything. They were all sad looking. And then by the end of the month, when they came back from graduation, they were totally transformed. The women were wearing dresses. The men were wearing aloha shirts. And they were talking to each other. And they, they, were, um, they were so happy and excited about, uh, about 
new possibilities. They made the transition, they got jobs, and they, they're thriving now. Our final narrator, Robert Gerard, was the ILWU Local 142 Vice President when plantations closed and sugar workers, young and old, trained for jobs in tourism. Tourism became the, the big thing, in a sense, as the only guy that was hiring, you know, on, on such large scale, yeah? So we were able to help in that area. But it's a big difference because usually the younger generation, they're more uh, open to change, you know, in a sense that um, they hear about all this kind of stuff, but they never had the opportunity. So, so a lot of the younger guys, they took advantage of that training and went. You had some old-time guys, well, oh, no, 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 Ken. And around that time when the computers started to come out, uh, a lot of these guys were so afraid about that, right? But uh, I had some old-time guys that said, hey, you know, after all, not that bad, you know. They, they, they were able to go to class and learn, and, you know, so that they could apply that to the jobs that they were taking, yeah, they were doing. During times of economic crisis and natural disasters, most recently the COVID pandemic, tourism declines and concerns arise about Hawaii's reliance upon tourism. Lessons can be learned from the historic shift from agriculture to tourism about how to turn to new economic opportunities and prepare workers for the transition. And thanks to the work of the University of Hawaii's Oral History Center, we can hear directly from those who experienced certain events in our past. Daviana McGregor, founding member of Ethnic Studies at UH Manoa, is also the director of the Center for Oral Histories, a group we've been working with at HPR since 2018, getting some of those voices of history on the air and on the conversation. We have a new project that is starting this month focusing on resilient community voices from Hawaii's past. She talked more about this project with HPR's Bill Dorman. Daviana, this broad project, really an ambitious effort, touches on community connection and resilience. What do you think makes those two elements so important for Hawaii in particular? Yeah, I think that, you know, we have a young generation that is disconnected from the histories of each of our communities. We have communities that are disconnected from each other and knowing the history of the other neighbor islands and Oahu. And we, you know, have a lot to come together around in times of stress or as we have just come out of a pandemic and being able to understand our common history and our shared history of struggle but also of cooperation and resilience is I think hopeful, gives hope for taking on the challenges that we will continue to face such as changes to our coastlines with climate change and perhaps other kinds of floods or tidal waves or other kind of disasters. And we have a history in Hawaii of communities coming together and really helping each other out and getting through that hard time and making a breakthrough. And that's the message that we want to share, that we have this history that we can draw upon and learn upon. And it's a legacy that has carried our communities and our families through to prosperity in some cases, or at least well-being and a good life. We heard some of those voices about the transition from agriculture to tourism for workers. And today, of course, there's a focus on transitioning beyond tourism for workers and, and for the rest of us. And when you hear a lot of these historical voices, so many just continue to resonate in the present. That, that seems to be a real characteristic for a lot of these oral histories. Yes, I think that's why we're doing the, the oral histories that... They're the experiences of our kupuna, of every ethnic group and in various communities, do have a message that is meaningful to us today to, I guess, take lessons from and, and be inspired by their determination and persistence and willingness to make sacrifices to achieve a better situation, a better living and working conditions. You know, you've been working for quite a while with history with oral history in particular what is it that, that captures your your spirit about your work with oral history well i think when i was going through the educational system both the secondary and undergraduate at uh we didn't have the history of our people in hawaii to learn from and in fact that's why as a senior in college i became involved and sat in to establish the Ethnic Studies Program and now a department at the University of Hawaii because I and my peers needed to know the history of our 
our communities and that it wasn't just a history of um, the overthrow of our kingdom, the you know U.S. dominance of Hawaii, the control of our economy and dominance of our economy by the military, and then the transitioning into from agriculture to tourism, even though people didn't have a say and were the ones that were impacted by these economic changes. For me, it's having the contributions of everyday people as well as the leaders to document those experiences and show that everyday people can make a difference in our own lives. And everyday people have made a difference working together in the lives of our communities and then in the future that at the time when I was at that age, I, you know, benefited from. So, you know, it's really honoring our kupuna, all Hawaiian and Japanese and Chinese and a Filipino and acknowledging that everyone had a role to play in the present that we share, which is quite affluent by by comparison to the lives that people lived on the plantations and much more democratic in comparison to the control that people lived under by an elite oligarchy during the territorial period. Daviana Pomakai McGregor, director of the Center for Oral History at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, and our partner in a continuing project focusing on connecting communities in Hawaii through life histories of resilience. Mahalo, Daviana. <laughs> Thank you very much. This project is also supported by the Sharp Initiative of the National Endowment for the Humanities through the American Council of Learned Societies. of Hawaii at Manoa's newest star students got nothing but bees on their last report cards. That's right. Research from the university suggests that honeybees have some problem-solving skills previously only observed in mammals and non-human primates. The conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote spoke with psychology professor Pat Cuvion and student Joseph Caldwell for the inside scoop on the honeybee brain. Brains of bees are almost 20,000 times smaller than the average human brain. But that tiny speck of gray matter may have remarkable problem-solving skills. When we started these experiments on relational learning, we didn't actually expect them to succeed. But because the bee had been so rewarding for basic learning phenomena, it was worth trying. That's psychologist Pat Cruvian, a professor at UH Manoa. She researches the evolution of intelligence and specializes in honeybees. Dr. Cuvion and undergraduate student Joseph Caldwell recently put bees buzzing brains to the test with a new colorful experiment. We have to start by collecting the subjects so the story kind of begins out here. Behind Dr. Cuvion's labs are a handful of hives, which are home to hundreds of thousands of bees. This is where Caldwell recruits his subjects. I don the traditional beekeeping hat and veil in order to get a closer look at these brilliant bees. This is just kind of like a light, you know, keep them off you. You can put that on your head if, if it'll fit around your equipment. Awesome. Yeah. This is the full experience. Yeah, so you are officially a bee searcher now. And did you, sorry, did you just say bee searcher, like researcher? Yeah, th yes, that's my, uh, don't, don't quote me on that one. I don't know. <laughs> the University Beehive Housing also comes with a pretty killer meal plan. So all the bees are down here, and then you can see here on the table, we have these we have these tables and then on the table there's a like a sugar water feeder so the bees have a place to land here on the plexiglass and then we have a jar with some sucrose in it um, so the bees you know they come from the hive they go to the feeder they drink some sucrose they go back to the hive they drop it off they unload the sucrose you know so it can be deposited turned into honey eventually and then they come back for more so they do this shuttle all day long while the bees are enjoying the complimentary buffet, Caldwell gets the necessary tools for the tried-and-true method of bee catching. So in my hand, I, I have a few empty matchboxes, you know, so if you can imagine the matchbox, you know, it opens and then there's a compartment and you can slide it shut. And that's where I'm going to use, that's what I'm going to use to put the bee inside. And while they're occupied drinking the, 
the sucrose or the sugar water on the feeder, I can gently cover them and then slide it shut and trap them inside. You know, once they settle down, I can kind of isolate one. And then what I do is I open the matchbox about halfway, I cover up the bee, and then I slide it shut. And now, I'm sure you can hear it. Um, I lit, put the bee up to my ear, or the matchbox up to my ear, and you can definitely hear it walking around in there. That's how you know you got one. Give it a listen. You can hear him rattling around in there. Let's see here. Get another one. Caldwell then brings these participants back up to the lab where he sets up the experiment. Now where we're going to be going is, like I said, just above the hives outside. So we're, we're on the second floor in the lab and the hives are on the ground floor outside just below the window. And in the window, I have a, we have a box that sits inside of the lab, but has access to the outside. So it's essentially like a window, but there's a chamber so that I can access the window and the bees can access the window from the outside. Once he releases the bees from their matchboxes, he marks each bee with a bit of colored nail polish so he can tell them apart. After that, they're free to return to their hives. But before they go, Caldwell gives them a taste of a high-concentration sucrose solution, tasty, tasty sugar water. That will hopefully entice the bees to return to the window and participate in the experiment. Each visit is what I call, or what we call a trial, right? So each trial, or each visit to the window, they're gonna encounter a new set of these stimuli that I set up. And essentially what we use are these 2.5 centimeter in diameter Petri dishes. And the Petri dish, if you can imagine, is it's circular and it's probably about a half a centimeter tall. And a little bigger than a Ritz cracker. Yeah, yeah, slightly bigger than a Ritz cracker and definitely slightly thicker. What we're essentially trying to make is an artificial flower. These artificial flowers come in two patterns and four colors, with six possible combinations. Caldwell uses them to run two different tests. The first looks at a honeybee's associative problem-solving skills. Caldwell places two Petri dishes in the window. Each has a different pattern. One Petri dish has a drop of that sucrose solution on it, a delicious reward. The other dish has a drop of stevia, which bees like about as much as we would enjoy munching on a lemon. They're not into it. They actually absolutely hate it from, from, by all accounts. Um, but the, the advantage to having it is, is the bees can't tell a drop of stevia from a drop of sucrose apart unless they taste it. So on the, on the positive or on the correct stimulus, I have that sucrose. And the goal is for them to, to choose the correct category or the rewarded category with the sucrose on every visit or every trial. Caldwell lays it out like this. Say the rewarded category is the Petri dish with a quad pattern, a circle divided into four pieces, like pie slices. In each trial, a dish with that design will have a drop of sucrose on it. The other Petri dish in the window will have a split pattern, where the design is a circle divided in half. A bee that chooses that design will get a mouthful of stevia. To add another layer of complication for the bees, these patterns will come in different colors, and the rewarded category may be placed on either the right or the left of the window. They need to ignore the color and the position, because it could be on the left or it could be on the right, and, and only choose based on the category. Over the course of the trials, Caldwell measures whether bees will correctly choose the quad pattern over the split pattern. And guess what? The bees can do it. Chance, so if they were just guessing randomly, would be about 50%. Right, would be 50%, because if you're just guessing randomly, if you're given two options and you guess randomly every time, chance is 50%. But the bees in, my, in this experiment, the category experiment, got up to about 70% correct. So it's significantly greater than chance, and it shows that they can actually learn to choose the rewarded category. And that was important because it set the stage for the next type of experiment, which is an oddity experiment. The oddity experiment basically tests whether or not bees can identify the odd man out. Here Caldwell uses three dishes, with two being identical and one being different. The unique or odd petri dish has the sucrose to reward the bees. And the oddity experiment is more complex because it, it's what's called relational learning. And relational learning forces the animal in the experiment to find the relationship between the stimuli and not just choose, say, on the basis of category, but actually relate the stimuli to each other and choose on the basis of a concept. Caldwell says that if bees were just choosing randomly, 
they get the oddity problem right about 33% of the time. But Caldwell's bees were able to identify the correct Petri dish more than half of the time. So which is statistically significant, and it shows that they, they can actually solve the problem. And you have 16 combinations in the associative experiment and 18 combinations in the oddity experiment. How long does it take the bees to figure out what's going on? Are they showing some sort of selection in the first few patterns, or does it take them a minute? So yeah, in the associative experiment, the category experiment, there's actually 15 trials. But yeah, there is definitely a learning curve. In the beginning, they do make errors and they, you know, they tend to take a few trials to figure it out. But usually by the second half of the experiment, they're, they're getting a majority of the, the choices correct. I, I would say if they got them, say they got them all correct, that would mean I'm probably doing something wrong, right? I'm, I'm, there, there may be something wrong with the, with the procedure or with the way that I designed it, or maybe they can, you know, maybe I'm pointing to it or something, right? Like, I, I would think something's up. I, I wouldn't take that. But, you know, it, with random chance, there is a chance that sometimes they get the first one right, and maybe two in a row right. I mean, statistically, it is possible for them to guess, especially when there's only two choices. It is possible, and sometimes I do have them get the first few right, but generally, they're never getting, I, I've never seen it, and they're, they, they generally never get them all right. Even in that second half, when they start to get some, they still do make some errors because, like I said, even though the oddity problem is more complex than the associative problem, the category experiment, they're both difficult problems. I mean, th these, are, these are not easy to learn. Are you at the point where you could propose a theory or an idea as to why bees seem particularly adept at this kind of problem solving? Well, it, it's, it's really hard to say, but w what we can say is that bees do have to learn out in the field, you know, which flowers are most rewarding. As I said before, they, they might have to visit 100 or 200 flowers to get a full load. So it, it's kind of in their best interest to learn which ones are the most rewarding. Now, are they using this type of concept of oddity to learn which flowers are more rewarding? I, I can't say for sure, but the fact that they can solve these types of problems, such as a category problem or an oddity problem, suggests that it may be helpful in some capacity in their life. It's hard to say though, but it is imperative that they, they can learn relationships, right? And this is just a relation, a relationship. You know, oddity is a relational problem. Dr. Kuvion says that this type of problem solving is generally associated with mammals and has rarely been observed in invertebrates. So does this mean that bees are special? Dr. Kuvion says no. I do feel very strongly that people should not assume immediately that the bee is special. We are a long way from understanding why they have these capabilities. If there's a confound we haven't thought of, though we're constantly running through the possibilities, so it needs to be done in other invertebrates. For Dr. Kuvion, there's a whole world we don't know about how invertebrates think. Oh, there's no question we haven't fully explored. The bee has just kind of given us a little peek through a window of the possibility. My guess is that the bee brain is not that unique. That was psychology professor Pat Cuvion and student researcher Joseph Conwell on the problem-solving skills of honeybees. They were speaking with Conversation Savannah Herman Pote. For photos of their experiment, check out the conversation page on hawaiipublicradio.org later today. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, an immersive exhibition of flowers and plant materials. Rebecca Louise Law, Awakening, celebrates the abundance and vulnerability of nature. On view now. It's time to give aloha. This month, when you shop at Foodland, Second Save, or Foodland Farms, please consider making a donation to Hawaii Public Radio. Every September, Foodland's Give Aloha program matches a portion of donations made to participating nonprofits like HPR at checkout. For more info, visit hawaiipublicradio.org slash givealoha. Mahalo. 
Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Occupational Safety and Health. The October Pacific Rim Safety and Health Conference highlights mental health in construction. Labor.hawaii.gov slash HIOSH slash 2022 conference. Geek Meet is back. It's the annual tech event that brings together people who are curious and have a passion that they love to share. Interests range from gadget lovers to coders to designers, craftspeople, and artists. The outdoor gathering had been on hiatus during the pandemic, but it is returning to Magic Island on Oahu this Sunday. Ryan Wazawa is a freelance journalist and founder of the event. He stopped by the station this week to talk with the conversation's Russell Subiono about being a geek in Hawaii. Webster's Dictionary defines a geek as someone of an intellectual bent who is disliked, an enthusiast or expert, especially in a technological field or activity, and a carnival a carnival performer <laughs> yes. whose show consists of bizarre acts. But today the term geek has a completely different meaning. How has it evolved over time? What does it mean today? Well, first of all, there are traditionalists who mm -hmm. still even believe in the carnival definition. I have a very good friend who says, I'm never coming to the geek meet because I don't want to do anything with chickens. <laughs> so that's perfectly understandable. Yeah. But as with many things, it's been reclaimed mm -hmm. by the community that it was once used against. Mm -hmm. And so I think especially now that technology pervades every aspect of life, whether it's social or political or media, that it's a positive thing for the most part. I mean, you can see a lot of ways that any tool could be used in a bad way, but I think we all can see that a geek, someone who is passionate about something, whether it's technology or something else, is great. They want to share what they love. I like that idea that a geek is someone who's passionate about something. I remember hearing the word tossed around when I was growing up. It always had a negative connotation. Mm -hmm. Then I watched that one episode of The X-Files that oh. took place in a carnival. <laughs> and they kind of explained what a geek was. And so ever since then, that's always been in my head. But nowadays, you can be passionate about anything. I mean, it doesn't have to be science or technology. I mean, it could be anything that you're passionate about, right? Yeah, and that, they're that public radio geek. geeks, yeah. you know? Right, I mean, right. <laughs> <laughs> so it's everything from the traditional interests like ham radio or astronomy mm -hmm. geeks, I suppose. But, you know, we have gotten to the point where I think, especially after the pandemic, we found things to get passionate about that, you know, don't necessarily require you to go outside. Mm -hmm. So actually, ever since I started this event, the idea was get them outside, you know, get a little sun. You yeah. can you can be geeky, but also, you know, reproduce, have children and expose yourself to the sun once in a while. Right, right. Not be so pale all the time. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. When I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, geeks and nerds, basically anybody who was smart or interested in science fiction or mm -hmm. technology, we were outsiders. But I've seen pop culture make a big shift. And it's way more acceptable now to be interested in tech or to dress up like your favorite character. What do you think caused this change? You know, that's an interesting question. I think some people point to the rise of Bill Gates. And, you know, the fact of the matter is that the people you used to kick sand in their face at the beach are now your boss. Mm -hmm. So I think that's part of it. But I do think that we are learning that there's something to be learned about every aspect of everything. You know, I, I just interviewed a group of people who are interested in mechanical keyboards, you know, the keyboards you use to type on your computer, mm -hmm. but they can tell you everything about the switches to the kinds of oil that are used to lubricate it, to the kinds of cables, the lighting. I mean, I had no idea. It's an entire universe in this one thing that you would get for $39 at Best Buy. So you can be passionate about anything. And I think that people are beginning to appreciate that. Yeah, I definitely think that the nerds have taken over the world, or at least the, the nerds from the 80s and 90s mm. are now the leaders in technology. And everybody uses technology, right? Everybody's dependent on, on technology to some extent. And so it's it's cool now. It's acceptable. I don't I don't know that I ever would have worn a Star Wars shirt in middle school, but I 
proudly wear it now. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think retro has a lot to do with that, yeah. too. I mean, we're all re- trying to reclaim our youth. I just realized, like, the 80s were 40 years ago. Just the other night when my right. kids were watching Ferris Bueller and they couldn't understand <laughs> anything about the plot because why didn't they have cell phones? All of these <laughs> problems could be solved with cell phones. So I can, I can totally see yeah. that for sure. But, I mean, Red Spooner makes a beautiful Star Wars t-shirt. I just saw uh, that, yeah. Uh, Aloha shirt now. So, yeah. yeah, geek is cool. And this this rise in popularity of geek culture especially here in Hawaii where ethnic cultures are such an important part of life. Does that seem to say something about identity and how we view ourselves? What do you think people of all ethnicities taking pride in being a geek means? That's a really interesting question. I would like to think that it's something that perhaps Hawaii might do better than other communities because we are open about and curious, openly curious about other cultures. Yeah. You know, I mean, my family on my dad's side being Japanese and building the Buddhist temple in Waipahu, and yet there's the bone dance, which brings the entire community together for perhaps one aspect of that culture. And, you know, Filipino festivals, Okinawan mm-hmm. festivals, there's this celebration of our identity but really the interest in sharing it. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's definitely something that appeals to me in terms of organizing kind of this diverse open event. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like Hawaii is the perfect setting for people to, to not just have to be one thing, not just Japanese or not just Hawaiian, but they can be Japanese and interested in tech or Hawaiian and interested in comic books. I think there's a this is a fertile ground for people to just like what they like. Right. For sure that. Um, To be curious about it, not to be ashamed about that curiosity, and again, to find someone who's willing and open enough to kind of share that with them. You know, affinity for technology is a big part of being a geek. It's not the only thing, but it's a big Mm -hmm. part of it. Hawaii is definitely a place that is dependent on technology, but is it a place that plays an important role in developing new tech? I think Hawaii has always had that role very much behind the scenes. I mean, the very early precursor to what became Ethernet, which became the Internet, was developed here at the University of Hawaii. I think that, you know, we've even had a number of business and tech companies start up here. They might not have been able to stay here, but, you know, took innovation from their environment. I think that any island community, not necessarily just Hawaii, but any island nation has to learn to be sustainable early, has to learn how to deal with isolation. And I think as a result, we embrace and innovate very quickly with technology more so than perhaps a community that has everything within arm's reach. Yeah, such an interesting thing, especially since there's much of Hawaii that is focused on preserving the past, but still a lot of Hawaii that is focused on moving things forward and, and creating innovation. Yeah. yeah. In fact, that mix is perhaps right at the you know bullseye of my personal interests in terms of, you know, sometimes the path forward can be found in our past. Sometimes we did things before that we've lost track of that we can succeed at going forward. You know, indigenous knowledge, native Hawaiian practices, sustainable practices, before it was a catchphrase, before it was a corporate mandate, you know, it's something that you had to do to survive. So I'm very excited by that development. Do you think Hawaii's history with storytelling and inclusiveness has an influence on the popularity of events like Comic-Con Honolulu, Hawaii Geek Meet and other similar local events? I think that there's some of that. Certainly the same way that this culture is pervasive, the geek culture is pervasive everywhere from sitcoms on TV to Marvel movies being the number one, number two, number three through ten movies ever made. That kind of pervasiveness is going to drive the popularity of these events. But I do like when you talk about storytelling and creators. In fact, I think that we're starting to see that make its way into school curriculums, make its way into career development and pathways in the sense that maybe not teaching our kids to code is the best way forward. Maybe teaching our kids to express themselves creatively, to do something that can't be replicated in Indonesia or India in a factory mm-hmm. somewhere is really the path forward. And I kind of like that too. I mean, yeah. whether it is Comic-Con or Kawaii-Con, you have kids that are building 3D models that are working with technology and and soldering circuits and stuff. And I think that these are important skills to have in any case. There's been a huge push in the past to 
bring kids into STEM careers. And I feel like maybe there will be some balance moving forward in terms of, you know, some kids in STEM and some kids still in the arts. Well, that's why I think there's the shift to project-based learning, which is, you know, we're not going to just study science. We're not just going to study technology, but we're going to do a project. And in a project, you are going to have the marketing person. You are going to have the communications person, as well as the technician and the programmer and the developer and the designer. I think that, you know, building well-rounded teams builds well-rounded kids. This is the first time Hawaii Geek Meet is being held in two years. What did you guys do during the pandemic? Well, I think we were all just sort of sitting at home streaming (laughs) things on Netflix and probably gaining a little weight, to be perfectly frank. (laughs) You know, the lack of in-person events was felt in the tech and hobbyist community, you know, whether it was cosplay or anything else. You couldn't get together. This is the year, whether or not you agree that it's over, that I think we've decided that we're, we've reached that balance. We're getting back together in person is more valuable than not. Are there any highlights? Is there anything you're really excited about happening at the Geek Meet this year? Well, I mean, I love all of my Mm -hmm. children equally, but the keyboard group is the first time they've come out. And, you know, I mean, talk about a a passion that literally exploded. I guess literally is the wrong word to use there. That really exploded during the pandemic. I had no idea that things like office equipment, obviously everyone got into it Mm -hmm. because you had to have a home office, but they went way overboard in terms of customizing keyboards. They're going to be there showing off their stuff. The Stormtroopers and the local cosplayers, always a hit, especially with the kids. And the good friend of mine who does the giant puzzles, whether it's the giant Connect Four or the giant Tetris, or Tetris, the Jenga and things like that, he'll be down there too. But the standards will be there. The Institute for Astronomy, even Hawaiian Telecom is coming because, I mean, they provide connectivity for nerds. So it's a, it's a really broad mix. And there's no membership or participation fee. In fact, we've every year had a group that I didn't even know exists just come down and say, do you mind if we set up a tent too? I'm like, you're welcome. Absolutely. Come on down. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming in and and talking Geek Me. I had a good time talking with you. Absolutely. Always a pleasure. That was Ryan Ozawa, founder of the Hawaii Geek Meet, talking with HBR's Russell Subiono. The free event returns to Magic Island this Sunday, September 25th, starting at 9 a.m. Be sure to stop by the HBR table and say hi. We'll have links to more information on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. Well, we run out of time today. Up tomorrow, we'll hear from local writer Susan Sunhee Stanton about her recent Emmy win for the widely popular HBO series Succession. We welcome feedback. Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And you can connect with Facebook, too. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. 